0: You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. As we move into John 8, we find Jesus still in the area of Jerusalem. He traveled down there from Galilee for the Feast of Booths, and the teachings that are found in chapters 8 through 10 occur in that region. Now, the specific text we're looking at today bears some explaining before we get into it. If you have a modern Bible translation, you'll notice that your Bible likely has John 7:53 through 8:11 in double brackets or some might even have it down in the footnotes. Your Bible may or may not give an explanation as to why that is, but here's the reason. The double brackets are there because almost all reputable scholars agree that these verses were not originally there. The Bible we have today is based off of the earliest manuscripts or copies of the writings. In fact, there's thousands of manuscripts that combine to make the Bible one of the most accurate pieces of ancient literature there is. And typically, the older the manuscript is, the more weight it holds because it's closer to the writing of the original. Those are thought to be the most reliable. So when it comes to John's gospel, none of the oldest and most reliable manuscripts have this account in them. It then shows up in later manuscripts, sometimes here in this chapter, but then actually sometimes in different parts of John. And then there's actually a manuscript that this story shows up in the Gospel of Luke. So they all agree this story is at best out of place. But at the same time, nearly every scholar agrees that this account is an authentic account of Jesus. It bears all the marks of authenticity and is in line with the style of the Gospel. So I wrestled for the better part of a week questioning whether or not I should preach this passage. But after studying it and seeing that many other pastors, much wiser and smarter than I am, still preach this passage of Scripture, I feel completely comfortable bringing this passage to you this morning, and I believe our time in it will not only benefit our own lives and souls spiritually, but will bring honor and glory to our Lord Jesus Christ as we exalt His love and grace and mercy through this particular account So, all that being said, let's go ahead and read this short account beginning in John 8, verse 2. It says, Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? She said no, one, Lord, and Jesus said neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. So in this account we'd really have three main characters that we need to focus on. We have the accusers, we have the accused, and we have the judge. Now, Jerusalem is already a large city, but if this is still during the time of the feast, then the city is still crammed with travelers. Jesus goes again to the temple to teach and realize the temple is the center of it all. Jewish life revolved around what happened at the temple. That's where the scriptures were taught and debated over. This was also the territory of the Pharisees. But but Jesus goes there and says, all the people came to him and he taught them. Now, obviously not every single person in Jerusalem was there, but John is emphasizing a significant size crowd was there. And just when it seems like they're going to have a normal scriptural teaching from Jesus, something very unusual happens. The scribes, those that copied the law of God and defended it, and the Pharisees bust into the crowd, dragging a woman along with them. They're essentially setting up an impromptu court right here in the middle of the temple with everyone around. So really picture this scene. We have the accusers, the Pharisees, we have the accused, this unnamed woman, and we have the judge, Jesus. And on top of that, we have the crowd who naturally followed Jesus all the time, but now is undoubtedly growing by the second as people want to witness this terrible scene. It doesn't get any more dramatic than this. Now, let's look at these accusers first, the Pharisees. They are at least bringing true allegations against this woman, We must at least give them that. She has been caught in the act of adultery. That's pretty black and white. Nowhere in here is her guilt denied. But there is one glaring problem. Where is the man? Funny thing about adultery, it takes two people. So where is the man? He's never mentioned a single time. We don't know why this is the case, but there are several possible scenarios. At worst, this was a setup from the very beginning in order to be able to bring someone guilty before Jesus. And at best, maybe they were caught and the man happened to run away, leaving her behind. Most likely, this is a byproduct of the wicked chauvinism so prevalent during that time. But no matter the scenario, what it does show is that these accusers are actually not that interested in justice. If they did care about righteousness and justice, then they, would have not, they wouldn't have come without the man as well here they are with this unfortunate woman. And they remind Jesus that the law of Moses declares that such a woman should be stoned. And again, they are speaking the truth here. Deuteronomy 22, 22 says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. A man who lays with another woman and the woman. That's what the law prescribed for such a wicked act. This was a terrible way to die. The Bible never describes exactly how stoning is carried out in detail, but it obviously involved pelting someone with stones to the point of death. The Pharisees bring this up, but then turn it on Jesus and say, so what do you say? They force Jesus to be the judge. And do they really care about finding justice in this case? No, it doesn't seem like it. Do they care that the law has been broken? doesn't really seem like it there either. In fact, there's little evidence that the Jews still carried out this kind of punishment for violations such as adultery in those days. This isn't even something they would normally do, but as verse 6 points out, the truth is that they are trying to test Jesus. In reality, Jesus is the one who's on trial, not this woman. They're trying to catch Jesus saying something he shouldn't have said, and they really do come up with a clever trap where Jesus has really two options, and both are trouble. He can say, no, don't stone her, and in so doing would be going against the law of Moses. The Jews, of course, would love for Jesus to do this and deny the law so they can call him a blasphemer and discredit him. But the other option to condone the stoning according to the law could get Jesus in even more trouble. At this time, Israel is occupied by Rome, and the Roman governors are really the ones in charge. The Jews did not have the legal power to carry out capital punishment. So if Jesus condemned this woman to death, then he could find himself in some major trouble, really as a rebel against the Roman authorities. These Pharisees, they care nothing about the law or justice or righteousness. They're consumed with hatred for Jesus. But before we keep going, let's take note of the accused This is truly a dramatic story and it's easy to get caught up in the emotion of it and feel sorry for this woman. After all, she's dragged into the middle of an enormous crowd and has her blatant sin announced for everyone to hear. Can you imagine that kind of shame and humiliation? But don't forget, she is 100% guilty. The wickedness of the Pharisees doesn't negate her own wickedness. Her sin shouldn't be minimized. She's committed adultery and betrayed the God-ordained covenant of marriage. So she's not a victim here. So we have the accusers and the accused, but now we have to see how the judge responds. The Pharisees really do lay a clever, uh, a clever trap, but they make two crucial errors. First, they test Jesus by the law of Moses, which is the word of God. Not a good idea to test Jesus by the word since he is the word incarnate. You aren't going to win that one. And secondly, the question's a little too open-ended. So what do you say? And then we have that famous line, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Do you want to know what Jesus wrote on the ground? Then you'll have to ask Jesus himself one day because it doesn't tell us. And it actually doesn't matter at all. If it mattered, then John would have told us what he wrote. Plenty of preachers can spin a good story and make something up about what he wrote and how it affected the Pharisees. But the plain truth is that we have no idea at all. And it's not the point anyway. Maybe he did it just to annoy him. They have this elaborate plan. They think they have him cornered and they demand an answer. And Jesus just bends down and doodles on the ground. I don't know what he wrote, but I do know what he said. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. When I read that phrase, there's no doubt in my mind that this is an authentic account from the life of Jesus, because that's such a Jesus thing to say. The scribes and the Pharisees had seemingly devised the perfect trap. They had Jesus right where they wanted Him with no way out, but then He goes and says something that just completely destroys the foundation of their plan. That phrase hits home even today, 2,000 years later, doesn't it? I know it gets me. It doesn't matter who you are. This phrase affects every single person because none of us are without sin. We're all guilty in the sight of God. I know I couldn't have thrown the first rock. I know you couldn't have either. There's plenty of people who think they're better than they are, but I don't know of anyone who thinks that they're perfect. Even these blind Pharisees can see the truth of it. And one by one, they walk away, beginning with the older ones. I think it's interesting that it says the older ones walk away first. Why is that? I would guess because they can more easily see their sin. Their years have at least given them that perspective. And as Christians, over the years, we should develop a more acute awareness of our sins rather than growing dull and apathetic towards them. As we grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ, we should hate sin more and more and hunger for righteousness more and more. That's the mark of someone who's spiritually maturing. So picture this scene now. All the accusers have gone, brought down by conviction. The crowd has gone because the show is over. And now only the woman and Jesus remain. We have the accused and we have the judged. Often the focus is placed on the accusers that had to walk away. But the real focus here should be on the judge, Jesus. He's the only one that actually meets his own standard. Let him who is without sin be the first to throw throw the stone. None of the scribes or Pharisees could meet that standard. No one in the crowd could, but Jesus could. He was perfectly sinless. He was without sin, spotless. Jesus had the the moral right to bring judgment down on this woman. And that's what makes this statement to the woman so incredible. He asked her, has no one condemned you? Her answer is no. Then look at Jesus' final statement. It has two parts. First, he says, neither do I condemn you. The one who could rightfully condemn her doesn't. This should cause John 3.17 to echo in our brains, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. This affirms that Jesus came on a rescue mission. He came to save. He will come again to judge, but His first coming, He came to save. And He came to seek and to save who? The lost, the lost. He didn't come to save those that were worthy or those that had earned it or those that were good enough. That should be clear by now in our study of John. He came seeking and saving people like the Samaritan woman at the well. He came to save even the woman caught in the act of adultery. How can Jesus say what he says? How can he pardon this woman who has the power to forgive sins? There's another famous account in Mark 2 where A group of friends are trying to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And they go to the extreme of tearing a hole in the roof of a house and lowering their friend down so he could see Jesus. But before Jesus heals the guy, he tells him, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees that are present there are outraged and ask the question, who can forgive sin but God alone? And you know know what? The Pharisees were 100% correct that God alone can forgive sin. So how can Jesus forgive this woman? Because he is the son of God. It's one thing to pull off a miracle and heal the body outwardly, but it's a whole nother level of things to change a spiritual condition. This is something only God alone can do. But don't overlook the second part of Jesus' statement to the woman. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Remember in chapter 5, Jesus healed the invalid and later on found him and told him to sin no more. Jesus does that again with this woman. There's no indication in either account that those individuals rightly believed in Jesus. But these words show us that Jesus' ultimate concern is for their soul, for their spiritual condition. Jesus healed the invalid from a terrible condition, but he still had a greater need. Jesus saves this adulterous woman from a terrible situation, but she still had a greater need. She needs a Savior from her sin, and she is talking to the only person... Who can do that for her? Now there's a couple areas in this account that we need to address that have implications for us as Christians today. One of those areas is judging. What does this account teach us about judging others? This is certainly one of those passages that some people might point to and say, "See, see, you have right there. You shouldn't judge other people because there's no one left standing. And truly, there is no one left that can condemn her based on Jesus' question. But is this passage teaching us in in order to judge someone, we must first be perfect and sinless? Well, from the broader context of Scripture, we'd have to say no. That's not what this is implying. As followers of God, we are deeply committed to truth and righteousness. So we must constantly be judging between right and wrong, what's true and false. Perfection isn't a prerequisite for judgment. If it were, then... There could be no judging. No one is perfect. No one is sinless. But people still must be judged and held accountable. But this does inform the way we do it. The scribes and Pharisees have to walk away because Jesus has just exposed their hypocrisy and self-righteousness. They were so conceited in their legalistic following of the law and so obsessed with trapping Jesus that they use this woman as a pawn. But Jesus His simple phrase, "'Let him who is without sin among you "'be the first to throw a stone at her,' it pulls the rug right out from under their self-righteous feet. It's a shot directly at their pride, and at least for a moment, conviction penetrates their heart enough for them to realize their fault. It's not the fact that they judged, it's how they're judging. They don't really care about justice or righteousness. They don't care about this woman. They only care about power and authority." This is in line with what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 3. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus gives us permission to remove the speck from our brother's eye, but he says first, make sure you don't have a log in your own eye. In other words, don't be a hypocrite. Don't judge someone for one sin while you're harboring another sin in your life. It shows that your motives are actually twisted. When we judge and hold other people accountable, we always want to do it from a posture of humility and repentance and do it with the motive of loving that person and wanting them to walk in righteousness far from the snares of sin. And on the flip side of that, what does this passage teach us about grace and mercy? Was this woman guilty? Yes, she was caught in the act. There's no doubt she was guilty of adultery. Does she deserve punishment? Yes. Again, she was guilty, and the guilty deserve punishment. According to the Mosaic law, she and the man should have been stoned. Yet Jesus says he doesn't condemn her and lets her go. That's the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And notice three things about the grace of Jesus. First, it's undeserved. This woman doesn't deserve this grace. She's an immoral woman who was caught in one of the most shameful acts possible. She deserves no grace from Jesus. She deserves punishment, or at least the due shame and humiliation. But yet, Jesus shows her grace completely undeserved. That's the same for you and for me. There's no one who has ever deserved the grace of God. There's nothing I could ever do to make myself one ounce more deserving. As Romans tells us, "...for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death." This grace is completely undeserved. And that leads to the second aspect of grace. It's freely given. She didn't deserve it and she didn't earn it, but Jesus gave it freely. She didn't even ask for it or beg for it, but Jesus freely chooses to show this woman grace and mercy based on nothing in her. And that's the perfect picture of the grace of God in the Bible. We're dead in our sin and spiritually blind. Romans 3.10 says there is no one who seeks God. We don't even know we need to look, but the grace of God penetrates our hard heart and it comes as a free gift. It's freely given. But there's a third aspect of this grace that isn't found directly in this passage, but can be inferred from the gospel as a whole. This grace comes at a high price. This grace is given freely to us because it was bought by someone else. We established that Jesus can only forgive and show this woman grace because he is the Son of God. But there's another equally important reason he's able to do this. He can tell this woman her sins are forgiven because of what he will do on the cross. When Jesus forgives someone, he isn't just magically making their sin go away. He isn't turning a blind eye to their sin. God is a perfectly righteous and just judge. He must judge evil. He cannot let sin go unpunished. So when Jesus forgives someone, He's doing it based on the work that He will do on the cross. Let's be amazed once again at what Jesus did do on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus lived a perfect life, a sinless life, the only perfect and sinless life. He perfectly obeyed God in every thought, word, and deed. And then in the most scandalous exchange, he let himself be nailed to the cross and become the perfect sacrifice we needed to atone for our sins. He took our place and paid the penalty for our sin. In his death, he bore the wrath of God that we rightly deserved. An innocent man died to let the guilty go free. But then when things seemed darkest on the third day, God raised Jesus from the dead as proof that he accepted his sacrifice as payment for our sins. The sin debt we owed was paid. And it's based upon the work on the cross that Jesus can offer his grace to this woman. And it's still based upon that work that he still offers his grace to us today. So as believers, when we read this passage, let's go deeper than just the details of the story. Let's dig deep into the eternal truth found in it. The truth that we that we are all the woman caught in adultery. We were all caught dead to rights in our sin, whatever that sin was. And according to the law of God, we deserve condemnation and, and punishment. But if you're a child of God, it's because the undeserved, unearned, freely given grace of Jesus Christ pierced the darkness of your world and redeemed you from the pit. And now we have the privilege and joy of living every day, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it be so. Amen.